Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. This week, we're talking with Sema Hernandez, who is running for Senate in Texas. Welcome, Sema. Hi, thank you for having me. 100%. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your competition from the get-go. You have two folks that you're running against in the primary. Both are far more establishment-oriented. The first one is uh, Christina. Her last name, well, her maiden name is Costello. I'm not sure what she's going with at this point. So this is um, a gal who basically took her husband's name after she divorced him, dropped her maiden father's name, and then dropped the H out of her first name. Why would she do this? I think this is kind of weird and wild. Is there a benefit for that? Well, I don't know what the benefit is, but it plays into the racism that is being generated out of the political establishment, specifically the Democratic Party. Because our 2018 campaign showed really strong numbers in the Valley, and the Texas Democratic Party attributed that to my last name, which was belittling to voters in South Texas. Yeah. Who, um, you know, this they, they are really educated voters. They are de- dedicated voters. They know the issues frontwards and backwards. But for someone to come in and change their last name so drastically, including their first name, and play on this weaponizing of identity politics just plays more into that racism that uh, the political establishment keeps running on, running these candidates on in hopes to to win a majority on identity politics, which does not work. So what but is it, her new last name? Well, it's it's seen soon Ramirez. OK. Yeah, it's um, so Ramirez plays more into what they're thinking, plays more into the Hispanic Latino folks that are going to be voting in that area is that the idea that's correct that's pretty jacked up (laughs) well it's disingenuous and oh it's it's entirely disingenuous it's colonization of a different way in 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 one capacity because she i mean she's more or less uh by she has her dad's what where is he from ohio ohio but he's ireland irish he's a european okay so he's european descent yeah so she's yeah. from two cultures. And, you know, here's the thing. Why? That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think part of what makes America America is the fact that it is that sort of uh, melting pot where folks have multiple backgrounds, multiple identities. And colonizing the Hispanic culture just to win elections is pretty jacked up. It absolutely is. And it's incredibly disingenuous for someone to do that, to play that kind of identity politics and then say that they are more superior than any Mexican running for office or anyone. That's right. So she said she was more Mexican than you were more or less. That was her claim on top of it. Yes. Well, she's come out and apologized, but the damage is done. The damage is done. Yeah. Totally not acceptable. That's this is to me as somebody playing politics, looking for power money. And then now is she originally from Texas or did she move there to run for office? No, she is not from Texas. She is from a different state completely. So she's she... carpet bagging on top of it. Well, you said it. So, <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, what What's really uh, important to focus on is this this tells you more or less what her character is, what her ideology is whenever she's going to govern. This is a reflection of what she thinks of anyone else who is not like her or is less than her mm-hmm. and uh, what she will prioritize going forward because she, much like any other every other candidate running in this race, they are prioritizing how much money they're fundraising. And fundraising is not going to determine whether you're the front runner it's whether you're going to have the courage and have the political will to talk about the most uncomfortable topics and address them in a way that is meaningful Mm -hmm. and to say that she is more in in mexican or indigenous but without really talking about the racial disparities the income inequality Mm -hmm. you're not really addressing anything you're just weaponizing identity politics yeah which is I, I'm, which I'm sorry to say is not uncommon at this point for dem establishment elites, unfortunately. And it, to me, it sort of makes them hypocrites in a way because they're, you know, the Democratic Party is supposed to be the party that's running on, on raising egalitarian principles across the board, fighting racism, fighting voter suppression, and that sort, this sort of um, activity flies in the face of those claims. It flies in the face of those who have been building this movement for Mm -hmm. these egalitarian values. And, 
you know, in, in Texas and uh, we, we have our campaign staff at, who has come out here, they say that they imagine Texas to be a little bit different, more, um, more centrist. But being on the ground, you see that people are extremely progressive. They're in tune with what the needs of the people are. We see a major disconnect with the local Democratic parties and mm-hmm. the state party and the national party. There is complete disregard for the work that the activists are doing on the ground. The Democratic uh, local clubs are the backbone of our electoral elections and what determines um, who is going to win and how we're going to win. It's their strategy. This is their backyard. They know how to do this. So to see that disconnect from local to state and national, it it doesn't reflect the everyday voter in Texas. And it doesn't address. That's that's absolutely spot on. I think there's there are there are disenfranchised voters that have been members of both major political parties that aren't getting their needs addressed or taken care of. And I think um, a, a good indication of that is how many registered Republican voters actually think Medicare for all is a good idea. So that's traditionally been like painted by corporate media, painted by the health insurance industry as, you know, quote unquote, socialized medicine, because they weaponize that word, too. But this is basically just corporate America trying to keep feathering its their pockets at the expense of your average American. And I think... I think there's both there's voters in both parties that understand the problem with that. And I think they would readily handily vote for a progressive candidate. I agree. The people here are extremely ready for these kind of reform policies. And when you strip away the labels of socialism, um, you really start to see people's minds shifting and saying, yeah, I love my Social Security. I love Medicare. Yeah, right? I love my paved roads. I love the school system. If only we had more funding to it instead of right. into uh, privatized institutions. I, that is socialism. Of course it is of a certain stripe. And I just think that word has been so weaponized that once people realize like kind of this ridiculous that I hate, I, I don't hate this stuff. This stuff is like it's in the common good. It helps everybody in the country. It helps every every uh every aspect of both party lines like the the voters themselves versus the establishment of both parties so there is a difference and there's definitely a disconnect that's that's happened and i think progressive candidates that people will say are traditionally to the left are actually appealing to most of these folks and we're going to see a lot of changes i think coming through 2020 uh, in this primary cycle i think americans are more in tune with what's going on and they're ready to to actually be involved in a revolution and the divide isn't this necessarily it's this you know it's a class war exactly it's a class and, war that's a good way to and put when it. we when and we you know what the billionaires voters. started that war not the poor people not the working exactly. class not the middle and class when, when uh we tell voters you know there's plenty of money to go around it's just not being utilized in your best interest we're utilizing it to wage wars right we're enriching the military industrial complex i mean that that eisenhower speech i come back to all the time because he warned us of this like and so many people haven't been exposed to that information he warned about these folks coming in and wanting to feather their own nest these corporations taking over the defense budget and that's really where we're at absolutely and we have been subsidizing foreign entities such as Shell Oil, which is a Dutch company in this country to put up their refineries right up against our schools. So, you know, we're giving these these subsidies away and tax breaks away, and we're not seeing anything in return except more exploitation. Mm -hmm. And that needs to end. 100% is welfare for the platonomy. So apparently if it's welfare for the platonomy, it's no longer socialism. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Right. So um, let's talk about MJ Hager, who is your other uh, person, your other competition in this race. She has ties to Chuck Schumer and many other of the Dem establishment elites, um, which I think has a certain level of toxicity to it. What are your thoughts? Well, it's interesting that we have Chuck Schumer, who is out of New York, Mm-hmm. who is part of the political establishment, has all these ties to Wall Street, yeah. um, really negotiated our judicial courts to be appointed by all of Trump's uh, judicial nominees, made these deals, and he is recruiting someone to run for United States Senate against me. He met with many other people besides um, MJ Hagar. He met with Royce West. He has met with um you know Beto O'Rourke in the 2018 election which 
those people and his staff are tied to Chuck Schumer, which is why we haven't seen Soon Ramirez running against me in the primary. And so for someone like Chuck Schumer to come in and start um, imposing his democracy in Texas, picking someone to, to run against me and John Cornyn, you know, that's, that's not democracy. That's no. more campaign meddling and election meddling and not letting voters decide for themselves who they want to run for office. So I'm ready and willing to take all of the primary opponents on in a debate. Mm -hmm. We saw recently how they buckled and they reacted and they remained silent on the most pressing questions about immigration. Um, and when I challenge them, they remain silent. So how are they going to act when they're up against John Corn and trying to stand up and defend the people who are the least uh, taken care of, the most marginalized and the most incarcerated at our borders? Right. hundred percent. So now is uh, MJ from outside of Texas as well? No, I believe she is from Texas, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Well, at least she's a, at least she's a Texan. <laughs> right. But well, a lot of so people are moving to Texas. Do you think she's more of competition now than uh, Christina is? Or how do you view the race? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't believe she's necessarily competition. Fundraising, their numbers are great. You know, they're, they're doing really good. But that's not necessarily a reflection of what Texas voters want or or, or what they need. I agree. And what better way to um, have someone who's going to come out on top than by having a robust primary and a very vigorous debate on the issues rather than these platitudes that are being shared um, where people get to ask the question like MJ Hagar, you know, you, you stood up for SEMA about mansplaining, but are you going to let Chuck Schumer mansplain to you what policies you're going to support. Right. So let's talk about that for a second. There were some fireworks at the um, AFL-CIO debate that you were just at. And I believe that's what you're referencing with the mansplaining remark. Give everybody a chance to answer it. Um, working people do better when they stand together and when they're united. And one of the um, things that's going on a lot in this country right now is very deliberate attempts to divide workers. Uh, particularly on the basis of immigration status, um, a lot of victimization of immigrant workers. And when people are working in this country and don't have rights, everybody's wages go down, everybody's standards go down, and we lose the ability to hold bad actors accountable. What is your plan to fix America's broken immigration policy? And what is your stance as a senator um, on what the current climate is around immigration? Well, I, I can tell you that being a daughter of immigrants, um, I've, I've faced some very interesting challenges growing up. Um, the undocumented or immigrant community is continuously exploited because we know that that industry and corporations would much rather have an undocumented workforce than actually recognizing workers as human beings. So for me, it's, it's having an entire immigration reform process in which we recognize um, undocumented immigrants as human beings. We give them the ability to become citizens without criminalizing them at the border. We want to ensure that they also uh, are informed of what a union is and encourage them to join a union. Um, I have spoken for undocumented immigrants before, but it's it's much different to to uh, be an undocumented immigrant and be exploited and be um, considered expendable. And that that is what happens um, in this country continuously. So what I would do is end the immigration policies that we have right now. We need to abolish the um, ICE agency that was created under the Homeland Security of 2003 and insulate the immigration process from immigration policies enforced by the current president or any president going forward. We need to put Customs and Border Patrol back under the jurisdiction of the Department of, um, uh, goodness, what is the, what is the <laughs> organization? The Department of Justice is where it used to be prior to 2003 and ensure that we follow the legal law and constitution and ensure that they have due process at uh, our immigration courts in order to have uh, a much better outcome for undocumented immigrants in this country. Thank you, Mr. Bell. If you can't remember a department, just say oops. What was the whole entire story behind that? 
Well, I am so tired of people telling me what my place is. Since the moment I stepped into the ring in 2018, I've been told that I need to stay home. I need to know my place, that I should run for something smaller, (laughs) that maybe I should run for something that I can fundraise for. And I have to really stand there and say, you know, that's racist. Yeah. You know, that's classist. You know, that is absolutely elitist and that is undemocratic for someone to tell me what my place is in this country. So I come at them hard. And a few nights before we were taking a picture at a forum in South Texas in McAllen that was put together by students. So I I, uh, commend their effort for doing that. It's really amazing that they did that. And at the end of the forum, the students wanted a group picture of all the candidates who showed up. Mm -hmm. So I went to go put my purse down and I pushed the chair in and Chris Bell says, well, why don't you just go ahead and have a seat since you're already there? And I That's said, bizarre. no, thanks. Well, I'm really tired of people telling me what I should do and what my place is. Mm-hmm. And when I went after him for saying, you know, I should just say, oops, when I didn't get the reference to why even reference me to Rick Perry, why even equate me to Rick Perry in that sense? So I went at him hard because he was laughing about the fact that I was explaining an immigration issue and abolish ICE uh, perspective. And he made a joke about it. The crowd laughed when it came time to MJ Hager to speak at this debate. Um, she wanted me to, wanted to give me the time to uh, respond to Chris Bell's mansplaining. <clears throat> Can I just make a point that I think that Sema should get a chance to respond since she was addressed with mansplaining down at the end of the table? Oh, yeah. I'm constantly being told what my place is, and I'm really getting sick and tired of that. Amen. Okay. Really. Uh, why don't you go ahead, uh, MJ, and then we'll go back to Seema after your turn. All right. Oh, good for her. So I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did not expect that MJ Hager would have done that, but uh, she did. And don't think for once I wasn't aware that she was using me as a pawn. Uh, but when I went after Chris Bell, it was on the issue of immigration and forgetting the, the department, which I didn't forget the department. I just didn't want to get it mixed up again with the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, right, I wanted okay. to be thorough and explain that the way we abolish ICE is by reinstating it back underneath directly the Department of Justice to insulate it from any kind of immigration policy enforcement right, of yeah. President Trump. This is before and, the Department of Homeland Security was set up. So I understand. Correct. Yes. Correct. But Chris Bell should and, know that. Well, he would think he would know that since he was in Congress. But then again, you know, some people in Congress forget what bills they voted for to reauthorize. <laughs> so, um, yes, some people make really bad decisions. And I don't think we should be trusting those same people to get us out of the mess that we are in. So when I called him out on that and I called out everybody else on that stage who did nothing about the immigration issue when we have people being um, essentially kidnapped and then coerced to give up their their, uh, citizenship, no one else stepped up, but I did. And because of the effort that we did um, as activists, we were able to liberate someone who is a United States citizen being illegally detained by ICE. And so while I was there, he apologized. He said it was a joke, and I didn't think that it was a joke uh, to to make fun of something so serious, such yeah. as immigration. And he apologized for offending me. And I said, I'm more than offended by what you said. I'm also offended because I'm sure a lot of us here in this room are just as Mexican as Miss Sinsun Ramirez. Exactly. And that also goes into... Miss Dinsun Ramirez telling me what my place was before she decided to run. Before um, I announced that I was running for United States Senate, I had informed her that I had spoken with Beto O'Rourke and I was going to run for U.S. Senate. And he was encouraging and he said he would support our campaign. And then when I spoke with her, she said, don't run, run for something smaller, know your place. (laughs) So, wow. Yes. So it ties right, right back into that kind of elitism. That's just drenched in elitism. Know your place. Exactly. Uh, so, all right. So that makes sense. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, let's talk about ICE for a minute. Let's talk about the Department of Homeland Security, because this to me is another area in which I think both Republicans and Democrats should be appalled, right? So 
in my opinion, the the Patriot Act, the creation of the DHS, this was all sold to Americans as a security issue, but really it's done nothing but infringe upon our, our Fourth Amendment and First Amendment rights in many ways. And, um, you know, ICE has been engaging in really appalling behavior. And I think part of the motivation, I think we have to recognize this, is Donald Trump is a white nationalist. I don't think this is up for debate at this point. He has appointed so many ex-John uh, Tanton cronies at ICE and at DHS that it's it's crazy. Uh, Julie Kirshner, who is the ombudsman, she's the ex-executive director of FAIR, which is the um, one of John Tanton's organizations. And if folks don't know who John Tanton is, they need to know. He is a guy that, his, you know, he's no longer with us, but he is a guy that spoke with, I'm not using Nazi as some sort of hyperbolic phrase right now. He actually worked with Nazi uh, race scientists setting up a eugenics program here in the United States. And he has collaborated with all kinds of white nationalists and uh, pro-eugenics and, and Nazi-type people it, th- through his entire career. And one of the one of the impetuses of FAIR isn't just to stop illegal immigration, right? It's to stop all immigration because they see the United States as as ideally as a white country as a european descended country he's so he is as racist as they get and the fact that donald trump has opposed has a, uh, appointed more than 12 folks from his organizations because he has several into the department of homeland security and at ice should tell you all you really need to know about what the motivation is right so um at this particular junction, I think people having knowledge of this, we should all be appalled because this country, the United States of America, this isn't who we are as a people, right? I mean, maybe mm. it is on some level. We have a racist history. We're originally colonizers. I get that. But at some point, didn't we all decide that this country was going to be better than that, more than that? I mean, I think both people uh, are both parties placate that idea at least, right? So- to me at this point, we're at this really precarious position where we have to make a decision about our identity, right? Is our identity going to be be that that idea of, you know, the United States as the great liberty, lady liberty melting pot, or are we really going to be this kind of fascist, racist, white nationalist, embracing country? Um, so as someone that's worked in indigenous rights areas, as you have, Sema, how do you see this fixing itself do you think both both voters on both sides of the aisle are ready to abandon ice are ready to abandon the patriot act are ready are ready to like actually come to terms with what our claims are oh no and then you can see that clearly with the latest reauthorization of the patriot act with the latest i think since trump's been in office the continuous funding of the ndaa we're talking in the billions now trillions of dollars um, Hang on a move- second. Stop for a second and explain that because that's what you're saying right now, I think, is absolutely correct and really important. The NDA- NDAA was voted on by just about every member of both parties. They're all bitching about what Trump's doing on the Democratic side, yet they authorized this bill that gave him the money to do it. Yeah, and that's what reaching across the aisle and bipartisanship gets you. Yeah, it's stuff big- we don't like. Way. It's a big giveaway to the military industrial complex, and it's a big fuck you to every person who wants equality, equity, and justice in this country. And how we move forward from the state that we're in is we need to be that America that we want to be, not the America that you know this, this president or corporate interests want us to be. A history of exploitation and demonization uh, across the board, we have you know, from the inception of this country to the enslavement of uh, Africans coming into this, you know, bring, being brought forcefully into this country and being enslaved. Um, it's it's a dirty, nasty history. Yeah. And if we wanted to change that, which a lot of us do in this generation, we would elect people who don't continue to impose this kind of violence yeah. on us. So how we move forward is by acknowledging everything that's been done in the past, mm-hmm. repealing all the laws of oppression against people of color, yeah. ensuring that we repeal things like the Crime Act bill, that we repeal and start defunding the war on drugs, yeah. that we end the contracts for these pr- private prisons and uh, detention centers, that we give back indigenous peoples their rights and sovereignty to their land. 
and have them um, decide what to do as a tribe to preserve their culture, their language, their traditions that we as a, as a country have continuously erased, oh, pretending 100%. as if they don't exist. The and, history of the United States when it comes to indigenous rights is continually been grotesque. And it's again, it's both parties. I mean, even under the Obama administration, when you have those lawsuits that were going through about the Bureau of Land Management not paying, not paying for the 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 uh not even fulfilling the obligation that they had made as far as because they're on these um they're on these private lands or these uh indigenous people's lands and they're building uh pipelines they're extracting oil they're extracting other resources and part of the agreement was that each one of these folks was going to get a check from the government and there were not they're not fulfilling that they had they can't even keep the accounting straight so but I guess, you know, I guess I'm at the point where as an American, I'm kind of tired of this country claiming that it's about liberty, claiming it's about egalitarianism. All men are created equal, right? It's that that phrase is, is ingrained in our constitutions, but we have never once in our history really fulfilled that idea. That's absolutely true. And the Constitution, just to remind a lot of people, was is there to uphold white male landowners you are totally 100 percent correct philosophically when they said all men they didn't really mean all men thank god they actually said all men though because otherwise we'd be in trouble but they legitimately meant white male property owners you had to be not only white male but a property owner that's how you had voting rights in the country that is part of our history considered property slaves are considered property yeah fucking yeah that is on the grotesqueness of that I uh, speaking of so let's let's bring up this another I think really uncomfortable conversation is reparations which is something that I 100% believe and always have and oftentimes the uh, the elitist argument against reparations right the the way it's framed is that this is a transfer of wealth from white people to to people of color but it's not from a legal from from a legal perspective the argument is you freed these folks, you made other obligations, whether it's, um, you know, few, 40 mules at an acre or giving you money from taking the resources off of the reservation. Like you can go through all of the things that the government agreed to that it didn't fulfill its promises on. So this is a failure of government of protecting the freed people, more or less. So it's got nothing to do with this other sort of argument that the elitists want to make. Is this something that you would get behind in the Senate? Because I think um, now, randomly in 2019, I didn't see this coming, but uh, Williamson running for office and bringing that up at the debate stage sort of pushed that conversation out into the American public. And I think it's one that maybe folks are finally ready to have. What do you think? The wealth of this country was built on the backs of the Native Americans and uh, the people who... Uh, descendants of slaves, essentially. And we need to calculate the cost of how much is owed for pain and suffering and what we owe from the historical perspective as well and tie that to inflation plus interest. Because we, I I specifically know that in this region, uh, in this state of Texas, emancipation came two years late. So during that time when that transition into emancipation um, when the slaves were freed, a lot of that labor was used to build these refineries. Mm, so a yeah. lot of the wealth is tied that is owed to them is tied to the fossil fuel industry. Yes. Um, so I believe in reparations. I believe that we should pay um, not just monetarily, but we all, we should also um, reverse the laws that unjustly um, criminalized black people and brown people in this country so that the level the playing field can be leveled so that these corporations can't say well we paid you reparations now everything that we do can no longer be considered racist or discriminatory so right. this isn't a um a uh, a cancellation of racism racism still exists no, in this not. country and it's these not. policies that are imposed are still racist and it's in nature uh so reparations in conjunction with uh, policy reforms is something that would take that wealth a lot further than what it would be without those reform policies. Yeah. This is about equity and equality. And we have to have equity before we have equality. If not, it's just something that the wealth will get more money than the rest of us. Um, yeah. As far as this transfer of wealth from white people to to people of color, I'm like, mm-hmm. 
the fuck, elitist? I <laughs> Seriously? Well, because, you know, it's, it's, this is, Sema, this is what white nationalists do. They tell poor white people to blame poor people that are people of color and not, to, because it allows them to continually extract wealth from everybody it, and dividing these groups up instead of having them have solidarity against the platonomy, which is very threatening to them, is, is how they've continually played this game for decades now, right? And, and it's been effective, but I think at some point, at some point we all have to realize that that we're all getting screwed over right now. I mean, every single, every single one of these uh, economic systems that we're discussing, whether it's slavery, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's putting the Keystone XL pipeline through Standing Rock, whether you can go down, all of these are also systems of oppression, right? So this is where racism and economics are, and, and classism are so keenly married together. There's definitely... Uh, an unbreakable bond between these things because capitalism is what undergirds these systems of oppression. They do it because they can make money, right? They use racism as the tool to extract more wealth, but the end goal is extracting wealth. Now, if we do something to change these economic systems to sort of, um, you know, which is, this is another American ideal, is it not? This idea of uh, the quality of opportunity, right? Which we do not have in this country at this point, but this is what, one of our principles as Americans is supposed to be. So we need to start fulfilling that obligation and do something about evening out these um, inequitable social starting places, right? So uh, we're not going to eliminate racism by fixing the economics. That's, that's also true. However, at least it will alleviate some of the suffering that, that, that these systems of oppression have placed upon these folks. And I think that that in and of itself should be a goal. Absolutely. And when we have 1,000 year floods or 5,000 year floods in this area, yeah, the money that is directed to come and fix and alleviate the problems doesn't come to our low income communities. It goes to those communities that have higher property values. Right. And that is classism. That is racism. 100%. If we would just fix our low income areas and our roads and our homes and our infrastructure, there wouldn't be as much flooding coming around the second time around whenever whenever there's another flood or a hurricane. And therefore, those very expensive homes with high property values wouldn't necessarily need that extra funding to help alleviate an already wealthy class right. to get out of their um, their disaster zone. Um, and that that's just a reflection of what happens when there's a storm. Right. Now, can you imagine what's going on in Puerto Rico right now? Oh, God. And what's it, happening... Uh... This in, is just in, depressing, in yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, what I call disaster capitalism. Yep. That's exactly what it is. And um, addressing these needs, addressing uh, indigenous rights, uh, you, you cannot claim to be indigenous and not talk about indigenous rights, indigenous sovereignty, and returning the rights to the land and recognizing that we, we have land that is alive that is moving and is growing and it's filtering our water right. knowing that the oil itself that's underground has a purpose and it should be recognized and left in the ground uh recognizing all of these other living things as um as as people and protecting them as people because we all have this dependency on the land on how we're going to thrive and how we're going to live um and understanding mm -hmm. that has been part of my decolonization process. Right. Now, I have had many people ask me, well, what tribe do you belong to? And my response is, I'm not one sure. Two, that's very Eurocentric of you to start um, asking me questions about more colonization language and words. Right. The, the process in which we give back this, this land that has been stolen from indigenous peoples is, uh, is very Eurocentric and it's very oppressive because you have to 100%. be federally recognized. And that federal recognition comes at um, the, these, these uh, types of questions that most of us can't even get recognition for, for our tribes um, because of the way that it is formulated. It is formulated to disenfranchise and take away your lands. Uh, I don't know where my tribe is. I don't know what my language is because so much of Texas, so much of the Southern part alongside the border of Mexico has been decolonized. I'm sorry, has been colonized, has been erased. There is no 
uh, significant indigenous history in our current educational textbooks in Texas, and that is intentional. Uh, we have John Cornyn, who does not recognize indigenous peoples. He says they no longer exist. Oh. And that kind of tells you the mindset of Wait, this type of person. did he actually say that? That's... 2012, 2014, whenever he want, no longer wanted uh, casinos in the state of Texas. So wait a second. So really, because um, that is mind numbing to me. So does does he see the casino as a moral argument? Like there's a some sort of moral imperative to not gamble, or what was, or is that more of an economic thing? It's an economic thing where it would, in his eyes, God forbid, give some economic stability to indigenous peoples and claim to money. So it's just racist crap. Yes, more racist crap. So if someone like Elizabeth Warren or Tsinsun Ramirez is claiming to be indigenous but doesn't speak a word of indigenous rights or sovereignty uh, until it's politically expedient to do so, then why are we giving them the time or the space to call themselves progressive and talk about the real systemic issues and systemic problem when they mm-hmm. see they are the ones that are seeking to exploit it? Now, you know, let's talk about that for a second, Sema, because I've always been bothered by this Warren thing. And I think she's been given a pass by a lot of folks on the left. And I'm not really understanding why she when she was at the University of Texas and these documents have all been disclosed at this point. She she checked the box that she was white. So this was prior to her checking the box that she was Native American. So at some point in her career, she realized it was expedient for her to say I'm Native American, whether it was like at Harvard and she was the first woman of color hire or whatever it was, whatever that motivation was, there was definitely a shift from like, I'm white to I'm Native American. And to me, this is a form of, of, of privilege in the sense that you think that you can use affirmative action to further your career when, when clearly that flies in the face of what affirmative action is supposed to be. This, this is about actually giving women that come from reservations that truly are Native Americans more opportunity that they don't have at this point. You are, are part of an elite group. Like how could, you, how could you do this and put your head on a pillow and sleep at night and still think of yourself as being not racist and progressive? I don't understand it. Well, they can afford to, and they have that privilege to move around and get to um, appropriate cultures, appropriate um, any kind of uh, it's so claims. Though. Well, because also if someone questions them and like, oh my God, I'm questioning indigenous women, it, uh, it, it, they would <sighs> find it offensive and therefore it never came up before. Right. So there was almost that Teflon coding fear thing that happens. Like if I actually call Elizabeth Warren out on this, I'm actually questioning a person of color, but she's clearly not a person of color. That's what I, that's what I guess what I'm getting at. At some point, at some point, look, I mean, I have Jewish uh, background, but if you look at me, I'm like as white as a snowflake, right? So I certainly have privilege that comes with that until people see the last name and then, you know, then the white nationalists come after me. But but there are visual indications, right, that the society has decided for whatever reason are, you know, putting you in a group that 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 gives you privilege. Right. So at some point you have to acknowledge that. No. Well, there are a lot of people in this state of Texas that I have met who are indigenous and who are not appearing to be what most indigenous people look like. And that's a lot of the common misconception is that a lot of indigenous people are dark skinned, high cheekbones, uh, very, you know, narrow or almond shaped eyes. Oh, really? Um, you know, yes. And it, that's necessarily not the case. I did my master's degree on, on race science, right? My thesis mm-hmm. paper is on the history of scientific racism. And one of the things I can tell you point blank is race doesn't even exist from a biological perspective, right? So the, right. the phenotype doesn't necess- necessarily follow the genotype, meaning genetics is this and visual cues is this so you could have these genetics and not have it match up to what whatever the uh, perception is by society right those things don't necessarily match up 
but we've decoded it's now like what 2020 we decoded the human genome and we know without without argumentation that there's only one race the human race you know we Correct. we share 85 percent of the same genetic structure and that 15 percent difference the admixtures is really based on uh, what i would call an isolated breeding population meaning geographical separations um religious separations not breeding outside of it but but these are these are sort of non-consequential in the sense that those alleles eventually are going to spread out through the entire human population as 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 marriages happen that's just how it is so at some point we have to come to terms with that right we're we're, we're making judgment calls basically on something that was just a social constructed thing that served a certain group Absolutely. Whenever I applied for jobs or just even went for health checkups, it was up until 2008 that I went by what my birth certificate used to say, which yeah. I am Hispanic, but I am white is what my birth certificate said. This is 1985 when I was born. Wow, okay. And so up until then, you were born 2000, in 1985, I feel so I old. In, <laughs> stop. I was in high school. <laughs> uh, so up until 2008, I was checking off the white box because my birth certificate said I'm white. But Wait, the more really? I thought now, about- this is kind of interesting. So, so where does that put Elizabeth Warren in that capacity then? Pale? I mean, she's clearly much more whiter <laughs> than you are, but like. Pale? I mean, I, I really don't know. But the, at that time, there was only like two races, black and white. Oh, really? And, and okay. yes. That's- and at least that's what I, you know, studied uh, whenever I was going to nursing school. Um, when my son was born, I asked his pediatrician, you know, my birth certificate says I'm white. I said, but clearly I'm not white. And (laughs) (laughs) she said that was something that they did back in the 80s. I said, okay. So the 80s were a different time. People should realize that definitely. That's true. Still racist, but different time. I'd say more racist. I mean, Ronald Reagan just is a monster for so many reasons, but he kind of sort of legitimized a lot of those things, I think. Yeah. So now I, I... where it says other, I check other and I write human. Yeah. I literally write human because like we're all part of this human race. 100%. Why are we allowing ourselves to put for them to put us in a box? Right. And we are doing it ourselves because now we've been psychologically trained to do that. And well, that you know, is so in itself something we have true. to dismantle. But on a certain level, like and this is I mean, so I feel like this isn't the conversation for me to have because I'm white, but I could understand why why folks want to reinstantiate racial terms to make them something better than what like white people decided they were because isn't that sort of empowering in a way so i i totally get i think there's two there's there's two arguments we have there's the cultural one right which uh, those are intercommunity conversations that happen and then there's the scientific one the biology of it which is where um, I come in and I can talk about the science from that because that's what I studied and I think those are two different conversations I think there is a legitimate space for conversations about race within a cultural definition right so there are there are there are cultural ties that each group has that have you know where there's traditions uh, food, like all of these things. And I think those things matter too. I think you can have, I don't think it's mutually exclusive is what I'm getting at. No, Does and that I, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when I came to this realization that I am human yeah. and what it means to be human, it was then that I began to approach um, my activism and the rest of the world differently. Yeah. I didn't view them as, you know, just Republican or Democrat or independent. Right. Or I, I saw them as a human being and what right. their most basic needs are. And running for this election, running for any office, really, uh, you have to deconstruct um, that Eurocentric, racist and classist way of thinking about yourself and how yeah. you view the world. And that's, kind of where I am at now in my decolonization process. It's it's going beyond those boxes. It is recognizing that we are all interconnected and we right. all are de- inter- interdependent upon each other. So tackling this issue, not just of unseating John Cornyn and Trump, but it's, it's also about dismantling these 40 years of neoliberal policies that have brought us to where we are now with a person like Donald Trump. And that means getting rid of the 
current democratic leadership and ushering in a new democratic leadership that is entirely about justice, equity, and equality. 100% agree with you. Neoliberalism is the is the uh, disease. Trump is a symptom of the disease. I think that's absolutely true. See, he he came to office because of the income inequality created by neoliberal policies. So I think that's definitely true. Um, let's talk about voter suppression for a second, because I think voter suppression can take many forms. We're coming up into the primary cycle. We saw all kinds of craziness in 2016. We're about to find out whether whether there's going to be more of it this this time around. So, you know, obviously things that get attention are ID bills, voter ID bills, like these things. And, and those are definitely part of the problem. Don't get me wrong. But I think there are more subtle forms that can be just as devastating, such as limiting polling sites. We're going to cut down the polling sites to half create longer lines so people don't want to wait for three hours to vote and they leave like there's there's so many things that go on in in our country uh, what are some of your plans to fix that stuff well when the federal government doesn't mandate a specific type of law it opens up the ability for states to create their own laws and in this instance when it comes to voting rights uh, the 1965 uh, voting rights act yeah. I think it's 64, 65. Um, that was a great start. But since then, there has been a lot um, in, in Congress going on to, to disenfranchise voters further. What I would like to see is federal uniform laws that allow for um, a a clear format for someone to to vote. So having an, an ID, if you don't have one, you know, that can be made available, ensuring that we have uh, enough polling locations everywhere and that we do have a national holiday for voting as well as automatic voter That's registration. That's a great point. Yeah, we should, that should be, a, it should be a holiday. Voting day should automatically, in, instead of a Tuesday, like, right? If you're going to make it in the middle of the week yeah. like that and make it difficult for working people to vote, make it a holiday. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and doing that, emboldens and reinforces a constitutional law that we already have, which is the 14th Amendment, where there is equal protection under the law. And having these type of federal uniform laws in place for voters and voting registration um, and imposing the 14th Amendment would allow that to just get uh, get people out to vote um, much quicker, much easier without the stresses. Uh, the things that get in the way are, of course, neoliberal policies yeah. and candidates. I don't disagree. I mean, so I always say neoist because neoliberalism has been embraced by both the right and the left. Neoconservative, neoliberal, they 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 share many of the same ideals like like the the markets, the moral arbiter, right? So there's definitely a crossover and it's about the plutonomy protecting itself. On that note, I do want to talk about the USMCA, which is the new NAFTA trade bill, the, re the replacement for NAFTA. It might as well be NAFTA light as far as I'm concerned. Whatever labor things have been added are toothless. Under NAFTA, there was also labor things in NAFTA. They just were never prosecuted. And I think this new bill does little to address that. Yet we had uh, folks like Elizabeth Warren arguing that we should be voting yes on this. Nancy Pelosi saying, yes, we should be voting yes on this. Um, what gives? Their donors must be proud. Yeah. Because that's what it is. It's a giveaway to industry. It's a giveaway. It absolutely is. We're outsourcing jobs further for no protections for our environment, for encouraging more labor to join unions for other countries to be reciprocating as well and ensuring that there is a higher level of standard for uh, the workforce, allowing their workers to unionize, um, enforcing um, uh, environmental protections in their country. There, there isn't any room for oversight. So yes, this is good for industry, not for workers. It doesn't guarantee that uh, industry will stay here and uh, that will actually create jobs in this country. No. And you know, I think this trade bill is, not, we have to also acknowledge that this bill has, NAFTA has been devastating for Mexican workers too. This is not just U.S. workers that have been devastated. This has been a handout to multinational corporations on so many levels. And what's interesting to me about the USMCA is that we have seen a break off in the union unions like the, the United Workers uh, Auto Workers does not support this bill because so there's there's these these uh, point of origin 
things that were in NAFTA that still exist under this new bill. And that that basically those are the thresholds where they can finally import tariff free. Right. So they've been only raised slightly. So which is why the UAW does or uh, the United Auto Workers Union doesn't support this. Right. But the AFL-CIO does. So there's definitely been a breakaway on this. But if you go down into Mexico, you'll see how much how many workers are living worse off now than they were previously because you have American corporations that have come down there and, you know, look at the avocado industry as a prime example. It's been devastating on both sides of the border. So this is not, this is something that, that the platonomy likes. It's not benefiting anybody other than the corporation. So, so why are, I get what your point is, moneyed interest, right? Moneyed interest, but Nancy Pelosi and many of these Democrats have voted yes on it. But they're being disingenuous and dishonest when they say it's a better bill, in my opinion. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. If we don't have a fair trade deal that guarantees that there will be environmental protections. That too. And enforcing other countries to live up to the same standards right. that we should be having in the United States. And um, ensuring that there is a living wage paid to the workers in which we are trading in, uh, trading with. Um, it doesn't guarantee that we as a country, as a society will be profitable and neither will the other countries. Because what good is it if they can't afford our goods and we can't afford right, their right, goods? Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's chasing the lowest dollar period. Um, you know, and you bring up the environmental part, and I think that is a huge part of it too, because anybody that doesn't understand that it's people of color, that it's immigrants, that it's climate refugees that are most affected by the, the pollution, like all of those polluting industries, they're put, they're put into poorer neighborhoods. They're putting into neighborhoods of color. They're not put into the white wealthy suburbs. Right. So those folks, and also, you know, uh, climate refugees, you know, the famine that's going to increase the flooding, the, the more extreme weather patterns, all of these have an effect on our immigration. And I think people just need to understand what those relationships are because every part of that has a racist component. And the kind of structure that is imposed in both in all of these trade agreements keeps putting the United States as one of the major negotiating superpowers. And that, again, is a reflection of our U.S. imperialism. And if those countries do not agree to these trade deals what happens next is the cia comes in and invades and overthrows the government economic sanctions already exacerbating terrible trade deals which are going to exacerbate uh foreign relations and can lead and escalate up to war and of course that will increase the already existing climate crisis which then uh continues to um you know force people to leave their their homes and come to our borders and then there is an uh added um horrific trauma yeah. at our borders Crime, and we see that all kinds ha- of happening often yeah so so, camps. so all of this is connected mm-hmm. and if we are not going to address those issues why the hell are you running i agree um so on that note what other parts of your platform have we not touched upon that you think um uh, need to be discussed or are important well the things that I've been working on, uh, not as a candidate, but as an activist, as an organizer, as someone who is an advocate in a nonprofit environmental justice organization, is our air monitor project. The last time you had us on your show, it was to discuss the ITC right. fire. Yeah. And that was almost a year ago. And since that time, we have taken this project, which I call my baby. Uh, <laughs> mind you, I have four kids, but this is something that... Um, this is your fifth kid. <laughs> it's my fifth kid, yes. And this is something that is near and dear to me because of the lack of preparedness in our area, the lack of oversight um, of these refineries and how much emissions how much toxic chemical is uh, being emitted to our neighborhoods when there's a petrochemical disaster. We see the lack of response, the lack of transparency. We don't get to see the readings in real time. We get to see it after it's been filtered, cleaned up, and there is, you know, a spin to the story about the chemicals that we're breathing in. So um, this came out of the ITC fire and I partnered up with an organization in Progressive Coders Network. And I've partnered up with the greatest and brightest talented minds here in our area uh, from students in Rice University to environmental advocates 
um, here uh, with the uh, our environmental justice coalition that we formed after ITC. You know, we we mobilized our community to um, not settle for the mediocre answers they were giving us. We wanted more. We wanted the truth. We wanted accountability. Mm-hmm. And so, as part of my activism and my organizing, uh, this is um, this is something that is extremely important to me. And we are currently in the. Pro- prototype testing phase of the air monitor project. And we are hoping to get some uh, funding, um, not for myself, but for the organization who is actually now taking hold of this project to uh, bring that project to its complete form and continuously build upon that technology. Because once we create it, we can't just sit there and say, well, that's enough. No, we have to keep creating um, and updating the information so that residents living along these fence line communities and these sacrifice zones have the most accurate information to better protect themselves because this is a matter of public good, of public safety, of public um, health and advocacy for people to advocate for themselves and hold right. these industries accountable. And that um, that's something that I'm excited to, to discuss and talk about. So when I say I am for a Green New Deal, I don't just right. say it and talk about it and, you know, these kinds of fluffy, comfortable, mediocre terms, (laughs) I address the real issues, the systemic racism and the environmental racism that goes along with living in these industries and how our government plays a major role in allowing them to continue to do this to us without any accountability. I actually do the work. I don't just say I believe in it. I fucking do it. Yes. (laughs) You back it up with actual action. I love that that's um, come along then because those fires were pretty devastating. And, you know, and I remember they were telling you folks to shelter in place and you saw the video of these these fires and the pollution and the chemicals. And it's like, my God, that cannot possibly be safe. Yeah. And and immediately after the smoke was gone, in other words, when the smoke was no longer able to be seen by the affluent communities in the Houston area, it no longer became a subject of of conversation or accountability or truth. So whatever chemicals were coming out when the smoke wasn't up in the air for everyone to see is something that we were breathing in and living with that no one else talked about unless it was uncomfortable to see from their balconies. Right, right, 100%. So now if folks want to donate to your campaign, where's the best place for them to do that at? Ooh, so many platforms. Uh, no, What's we only have fa- one. What's it's- most beneficial for you? You've got a great website now. Do you right. take donations direct on that or? Yes, uh, we take it on Act Blue. There's a link on SEMA, F- yeah, SEMA, the number four, Texas. It's also SEMA, F-O-R-T-E-X-A-S.com. Okay. And I have to say both because, you know, we we have both, both um, web addresses going to one website. I was just so used to saying semifortexas.com. You go there and you click on the donate link and it'll take you to the Act Blue page. Um, You know, supporting our campaign is great. Getting volunteers for our campaign is extremely important. We need people to walk, walk. Yes, canvassing. And that is on a uh, a different platform on Airtable. It's bit.ly forward slash SEMA Groundbreakers. Um, What I would like. SEMA Groundbreakers? Yes. Okay. my groundbreakers, yes. Um, I would like to give a shout out to our campaign staff. So yeah. John Graziano, who does our website. Uh, Noah uh, Williams, who also does uh, the tech stuff. Stephen Scapoletti, who, you know, is my policy advisor. Yes. And God I'm a big damn. fan of both Stephen and John's. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much knowledge that I'm learning yeah. from, you know, three people. And when it comes to policy, you know, someone who has that law degree and who has been in the field for over 30 years is 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 extremely beneficial uh to our campaign and how to construct policy and how to talk about gun rights without infringing upon anyone's gun rights um uh jeff uh smith who does our videos and our graphics as well as tammy and um oh my god there's so many names i'm gonna forget but you guys, you know who you are. I will probably do a shout out later on. Right on. But it's uh, it's really amazing to have a great group of volunteers yeah. who are in our Slack, who are in our Discord. We have Ray, uh, Violet Ray, who is with the Rose Caucus, who um, helped design our campaign. Oh, logo. yeah. She used to work with John over at the Young Turks, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so isn't that wild that I know that? <laughs> 
Well, you know, we are all part of this progressive movement and we are all using our talents to advance these causes, these, these people who we support like myself, and that is solidarity. And I love how we have all come together for these causes and these candidates and supporting one another and uplifting one another. Because I know myself, uh, I can't make this change on my own. I need the help of the people and therefore we are funded by the people. And um, doing that uh, with other candidates is absolutely amazing because this is how change happens when we are all working together for the same cause where it is genuinely not me, us in this movement. 100%. 100%. And honestly, once, and I look forward to having you in con, or uh, in the Senate, but that's really the starting point, isn't it? Once Bernie Sanders is elected president, once we have uh, senators like you in office, we are really going to have to go full throttle against the platonomy. They're going to fight even harder, I believe. Like, I, it's not just getting into office. That's like the square. We're now on the, we're now on the game board, right? Now we have to really fight these folks to get actual change implemented. But right. thanks for coming on, Sema. As always, you're amazing for what you're doing down there in Texas. We appreciate your voice and your activism, and we look forward to seeing you win this election. Absolutely, and I look forward to being the next United States Senator in Texas. Excellent. Excellent. 